I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, This is one, and that one were born in her. The Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will count when He registers the people. This one was born there. See law. Then those who sing as well as those who play the flutes will say, Oh, my springs of joy are in you. One of the Bible verses you might have learned on your mama's knee was not one of those ones that are terribly comforting, but it said something true about life. That's Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The Proverbs speaks of the gnawing disappointment a person feels who endures a swamp of trouble with the expectation that at the end of the tunnel there would be a bright lamp shining. Only to find that when they meet the end of that tunnel, what they find is a a flickering candle. And the proverb is telling us that when people experience the deferment of hope, it makes the heart sick. When hope slips through the fingers and when hope feels like it's slipping away, we become spiritually weary and weak. That, people of God, is the context of Psalm 87, hope slipping away. It's important that we understand that's the context of it because when we do, we'll begin to understand the the force and the application of this psalm. Calvin himself said, Attention to the time when this psalm was composed will contribute in no small degree to understanding its contents. Is that if you want to get a hold of what this psalm is all about, you better understand to whom it was written and why. So when we look over this psalm, it seems to me there are two things that we can grasp at which bring us into the world of thought where the psalm was composed. And the first word or the first detail is foundation, and the second is Zion. And both of them interpenetrate and overlap. Because the foundation is obviously a reference to the foundation of the temple and the house of God. And Zion is a metaphorical and symbolic term which is used throughout the scriptures to speak of the location and the place of the temple, the place where the name of the Lord would be established because God was dwelling there. And this uh, foundation, this term foundation, leads us to think of the temple foundation and not the first temple foundation, which would have been the foundation 
of the glorious Solomonic temple, but it would be the second foundation of the second temple, which was laid in the 6th century B.C. And we begin to connect these things in our mind, the foundation being the foundation of the temple, which is Zion, the, the dwelling place of God with his people in the 6th century. We begin to isolate the historical moment when this psalm was written and to whom it was addressed and why there was a problem. And uh, knowing a little bit about that time as you survey some of the contemporary literature and the books that were written about it, it was marked out by great discouragement. The people of God were discouraged because almost no one returned from Babylon. They chose the palaces of Babylon rather than the house of the Lord. They were discouraged because the few in number who did return to the land were constantly harassed by local enemies. They were discouraged because when they came back to the land to rebuild the temple and they laid its foundations, the people who had seen the first Solomonic temple with the glory of its foundations looked upon this one and they cried. And so the era that uh, this song was written in and to whom it addresses was addressing a people who were sick. They were sick in heart because hope felt like it had been deferred. This is the generation of people that grew up in exile. This is the generation of people that were taught by their pastors and elders while they were in Babylon to look at the promises and the prophecies of the word of God about the great work of restoration that God would do and how he would once again make Zion the center of the earth. The joy of the world because of its elevation. And how the peoples would scream to it. And yet when they came back to the land. And they small, saw they were small in number. And when they felt the constant harassment of their enemies. And when they looked upon the pitiful foundations of the new temple. They were sick in heart. Hope had been deferred. So Psalm 87 addresses a church that is, that is sick in heart. Psalm 87 addresses a church that is experiencing affliction. Psalm 87 addresses people who feel dejected, who feel that, that God hasn't been answering prayers and, and that God hasn't been keeping His promises. And what it does is it speaks to that church and it says two things God loves his church and God will yet expand and build and preserve his church so it speaks words of affirmation and promise to those who are weary and sick in heart we're going to examine that great idea in two parts the Lord's love for Zion in the Lord's work of gathering and preserving the peoples of Zion. So we begin, first of all, with the Lord's love of Zion, and we can see that love of God expressed in his identification with the foundation of Zion. 
And you see this word foundation is an architectural term. It is a building term. It is precisely the term that you would use to speak of that which a house is built upon. And of course, everybody knows if you're to have a house that endures and that has any kind of sturdiness, it's got to have a foundation and a firm one at that. You learned that from Jesus, didn't you? As he spoke about the man who built his house on quicksand. It's of no use. So foundation is something significant, and this term foundation is used of the temple and in a contemporary biblical book. Ezra chapter 3 verse 10 speaks this way. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Hear that? It uses the very same word and refers exactly to the situation we're speaking of, which is the post-exile, the return from Babylon time, when they had returned to the land to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And it uses this term foundation specifically to speak of this second temple. And here's the thing that Psalm 87 says about that in verse 1. It's God's foundation. This is the beginning of the story of the love of God for his church. Psalm 87.1 says his foundation. You see... He identifies himself with that. And why that is so significant is if you read on in Ezra 3, you'll understand why. It says in verse 12, Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, that is the Solomonic, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping. The cries and the agony were so palpable, the volume was so loud, that you could not distinguish between the people who were shouting their hearts out with joy and song between them and the people who were crying over the pitifulness of God's house. And yet here, the psalmist says, put on a new pair of eyes. This is the Lord's foundation. And it goes on to speak of these foundations in relationship to the holy mountains. And obviously this is a reference geographically to the mountains which surrounded Jerusalem, which would encompass within it the mount upon which the temple was built, Mount Zion. And here's the thing we're told here, that his foundations are in the holy mountains. And the reason why the mountains are holy is not on account of some intrinsic metaphysical aspect. The reason they're holy is because God has determined to dwell there. The very dwelling of the presence of God among his people consecrates it as holy. And so here's what the psalmist is saying of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You who are weary, you who are weeping, you who are discouraged, you who are sick in heart because of the supposedly pitiful nature of this foundation, you need to understand what makes it great. What makes it great is it's the Lord's. What makes it great is it's the place where God dwells. So verse 1 says to those who are weary and broken hearted, he says, you need to think of something this morning. You need to think upon the love of God. 
You need to think upon the fact that, that God loves His church so much that He dwells in the midst of it and says, don't measure the love of God based upon what you see with your eyes. You need to see with the eye of faith. God speaks to them a word of consolation. It may be pitiful in your eyes, but it's glorious because of God who dwells there. And now the imagery drops as you move into verse 2 and you hear something very specific. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all of the dwelling places of Jacob. So you'll notice here there's a comparison. And first of all, what we notice here is of a greater love. The comparison signaled by the words more than sets up a contrast. You have the gates of Zion and you have the dwelling places of Jacob and the dwelling places of Jacob are nothing more than the tribal houses scattered throughout the land. They, they are the representation of, of the people of God in their tribal units and locations that have their own house and hearth and home. And in other words, it's the families of the people of God. And the thing that the Lord says here. Uh, is that God loves the gates of Zion more than he loves the individual families of Zion. It's not to say that the families of of Jacob are irrelevant or trivial or that God doesn't love them. He doesn't say that. What he says is he loves them less. He loves something else more. What he loves are the gates. And that word love is significant. It is to have a relationship based upon affection. And the verb here is a present tense, so it suggests this continual, overflowing, abundant, streaming love of God. And the object which God says has his special affection is the church. He loves the gates of Zion. And the gate simply isn't a reference to the gate of Jerusalem as a a military fortification. No, the gate of Zion is the means of access to the place of worship. And so it represents and stands for the house of God. It represents and stands for the assembly of the saints for worship. It represents the place that God has appointed to meet with his people. And what it says here is that God loves the gathered church more than he loves the families. God loves the gathered church more than he loves the families. It's not to deny that family units are not covenantal and they don't make up the constituent elements and parts of the church, but family is not the church. The church is made up of family, but family isn't the church. The church is the totality of believers and their children. As they unite together and are bound together in fellowship in Christ. And this is very important to understand because there is a vocal and misguided minority of people who masquerade as reformed today who have reduced the church to the family. And they argue the family is the church. The, past, the, the father is the pastor. And I know men who actually are so committed to this 
that when they bring their family to the church, if they do at all, they parrot the words of the pastor to their children because they don't want the pastor usurping their authority as the spiritual head of their home. And when they take communion, the father has to administer the elements. And they regard their family as above the discipline of the church because they say, if the church can discipline my children, then I'm not the supreme head of my home. Loud, vocal, misguiding, and masquerading. It's not the Reformation. It's not Presbyterianism. It's the radical Reformation. The psalmist makes it very clear here that what God has a special love for is the church, the gates of Zion. And he says it unmistakably and clearly to the dejected and the heart sick this morning. He says to you, you are a part of something which God sets his special and affection upon. People of God, we must love what God loves. We must love what God loves. And what God loves is this. What God loves is the assembly of the saints. What God loves is us meeting together before the Lord as his church. It is so discouraging to hear of so many churches closing their doors. And I know that there's a lot of disinformation. I know there's a lot of panic. I know there are a lot of reasons. But when the church doesn't do this, it's missing out on something special. Because it's missing out on what God says he puts his seal of approbation upon. His special love is here. The church gathered for worship. We're incomplete spiritually without it. I know we have to make the best. And sometimes we have to make the most of the means we have because of some providential difficulties. But our hearts should be set and fixed upon what God loves. He loves his church. The third thing that indicates the love of God for Zion here is his word of approbation about it in verse 3. He says, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Siloh. So what are these um, spoken glorious things? And, and commentators seem to be divided here. Could it refer to things that God spoke before Psalm 87? Or... Is it what the psalmist goes on to speak of in the subsequent verses? And, you know, I think that those who would say that what is spoken here, what is glorious, certainly could refer to what God has spoken because God had spoken all kinds of glorious prophetic words about Zion. One of them was Isaiah chapter 2. Come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills. The nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, that he may teach us concerning his ways. The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it goes on to speak of the results. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn of war anymore. These are glorious things which had been spoken and the tense of the verb would allow for it. 
And in fact, I, I think if, if we use that as our backdrop to the rest of what's said here, it would seem to me that the psalmist is reaching for those prophecies and promises about Zion and the church and now says to the people of God who are sick of heart, God hasn't forgotten them. Because as you read on to verses 4 through 6, what you see is precisely what was set forth in prophetic hope. The nations streaming into the church and into the kingdom of God under the image of Rahab and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. You see, they're intertwined. And so this morning, it seems to me that the things spoken which are glorious are spoken about so that the church will stop and measure itself, not by what it sees and its circumstances, by what God has spoken. Calvin puts it like this. He says, attention is called away from the present aspect of things and directed to the promises which inspired them with the hope of the wonderful glory it should be adorned. And he says this, Nothing appeared the eye of sense and reason, yet the prophet would have them encouraged by the word to stand, as it were, on a watchtower. The glorious things that had been spoken were true. They, they were not false. God hadn't failed. The promise hadn't fallen to the ground. And as they stood there and they wept over the, the foundation of the Lord and thinking it was pitiful, the psalmist is saying to them, you need to understand this does not represent the failure of God. This is the installment or the down payment of God fulfilling his word. He says, look at it through the lens of prophecy and of promise and of the word of God. You might be standing in the midst of Jerusalem with its ruined walls and small temple foundation. But you need to understand, this doesn't mean that God has failed. It just means that God is working on his own timetable. You see, this is the constant message to the church to give it hope in times of distress when it's sick in heart. Yes, things may not appear like they're measuring up to the, to the promises of the word of God. But what the psalmist does here, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is fit us with an amazing tool, which is this. Don't evaluate your relationship to God based upon the circumstances in your life which you think are unfavorable. You look upon your relationship with God based upon his word of promise. And the word of promise spoken to you is the same word of promise which was spoken to that church. God loves the gates of Zion. God loves his church. That means God loves you. The psalmist speaks here of the love of God in Christ. And he says, this is what we're to think upon. The thing that ought to console us in our distress and our discouragement and dejection and heart sickness is the love of God. We're to think of the, the freeness of the love of God, the grace of the love of God, the sovereignty of the love of God, the unfailing nature of the love of God, the, jealous of the, the jealousy of the love of God, the protection of God's love, the provision of God's love. And we can go on and on thinking about the various nuances and elements of this enormously rich concept, but it's this 
that the psalmist says, when you are disheartened and spirit broken and you feel small souled, you're not to look at your life and look at your circumstances and assume it meant that God has abandoned you. He says you need to look at your life and understand your relationship to God based upon his word and his word of promise. And the word of of God is this. The love of God in Christ is so powerful and so exhausting and so unfailing that nothing can separate us from it. Some people, when they hear about the talk of the love of God for them, shrug their shoulders. They shrug their shoulders. Isn't this the one uh, verse that everybody knows that they didn't even learn on their mama's knee? God so loved the world. The story is told by the, the guy who was doing campus evangelism one time that he walked up to somebody and said, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the gentleman turned around and said, well, next time you're talking to him, tell him thanks. love of God you see when somebody shrugs their shoulders at the proclamation of the promise of the love of God to them what they're betraying is is a heart that's full of coldness a heart that is so full of self-righteousness and deception that it doesn't understand what's fundamental to enjoying the concept And what's fundamental to enjoying the concept and and the application of the promise and the proclamation of the love of God to us is he didn't owe it to us. He didn't owe it to you. Think about yourself this morning and all of your perfection. You have nothing to offer to God. You have nothing about you that commends yourself to him. How good is your righteousness this morning? Is it good enough for God to say that you meet his approval? You see, it's the person who thinks of themselves as spectacular that doesn't enjoy the proclamation of the promise. They're unfazed by it. When a person begins to realize that the love of God is a love of God for sinners, it begins to become a wonderful concept it's not just a pious one either it's a concept which is a reality which is intertwined around a blood soaked cross God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son to die for us not an empty concept at all not a pious platitude And so the psalmist proclaims to a, a heartsick generation something that their ears needed to, to hear. God loves the gates of Zion. God loves his church. God loves you. And that brings us to the second point of our text, which is the Lord's work of gathering and preserving the peoples of Zion. And this is quite a remarkable section. And one of the things that makes it remarkable is the preface to it in verse 4 here, where we read, I shall mention. And it's quite evident as you, as you begin to think about who is the speaker in the first person personal pronoun I, that, that it's, it's the Lord. This is the Lord speaking 
to his church about his church here. And so that means that everything that is spoken here is emphatic and, and, and full of depth. It's something solid and firm. And he says, I'm going to cause this to be remembered. I'm going to cause this to be known and mentioned. And there's two things that God says, I'm going to go out of my way to speak into your ears. The sovereign expansion of the church by grace and the sovereign preservation of the church by grace. And so he speaks of the sovereign expansion of the church by grace here. And what's so stunning to us in the language is the people whom the church expands to. Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia. The Lord looks upon the church, and what does he see as he looks down the corridors of time and space and history? But a multinational church which has burst beyond the borders of Judah. And it contains all of the rogue nations you could put on a list. Rahab is a poetic reference to Egypt which was used derisively by the Jews to speak of that evil power that ensnared them in bonds for hundreds of years. Philistia, you know already, is the old nemesis of the people of God who one generation after the next subjugated them by war and by sword and enslaved them. Babylon, of course, is the nation they've just returned from, which is the evil empire that swept down upon them and burned down their houses and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and pillaged the temple of God. Carried them off into exile. The rest of them are no slight offenders, Tyre, Phoenicia, Ethiopia. So the thing that you begin to be impressed with here as you look at this list is that it's not just multinational. We look at it and we say, yeah, that is wonderful. It is marvelous because before it was only the genetic, biological descendants of Abraham and clearly these aren't. But the thing that you begin to look upon here and see is marvelous is that the enemies of Christ have been brought to him. The enemies of Christ are the people who've been brought to him. In fact, Matthew Poole looks upon this and he says, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11.6, which speaks about the wolf and the lamb dwelling together in safety. The unthinkable image of nature is the wolf and the lamb could, could dwell together in safety at all, at least for the lamb, right? And he says, this is it. The import of this is the glorious thing that God is setting before the church, which is standing before Jerusalem's ruined walls and torn down gate and pitiful little foundation is this. The fulfillment of the hope and the promise of Zion isn't about the few Israelites that showed up. The hope and promise of it all is the expansiveness of the sovereign work of God to build his kingdom. And the hope and the joy and the glory of it all is that God takes those who were his enemies and brings them into his church. The glorious thing spoken of here is that the one who is the enemy of Christ today will be singing the psalms with the people of God tomorrow. How does it happen? Grace. You'll notice the term born. Three times, three verses, this one is born there. Points to the means of the gathering of all of these people from among the nations. 
born. It's a metaphor and image of the sovereignty of God in conversion because after all, not one person who lives in the world is responsible for their birth. Not one person who lives in the world did anything to contribute to their birth. It is a perfect metaphor of the spiritual nature of the sovereignty of God and His grace when He brings people from the brokenness and the depths and the bondage of sin into the life of Christ and the gospel. And what the psalmist holds before a church which is struggling, crying and weeping and discouraged and heartsick because of the pitiful number of the people of God. He says, don't worry. God says, I can see down the alley. I can see over the horizon. And what's coming is an expansive work of God's grace to bring in all of his children from the fields of sin to build a vast multinational church. The psalmist proclaims the sovereignty of God and his grace in bringing people to salvation. And then he says something else, which is a twin grace, if you will, as he speaks now of establishing it. We come to the second element here of the vision set before the church by God. He speaks of the sovereign preservation of the church in verse 5. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High will establish her. There's three key things here, and the first one is the conjunction and. If you want to add a little something to your knowledge of grammar this morning, the and is called a copulative conjunction. And I know you probably haven't looked that up recently, and so in case you haven't, it means it takes two halves of a statement and binds them together so they have to be read in relationship to one another. And so the first thing that is said here is this one is born of her, and then the conjunction and unites that to what follows and says there is a supplementary and simultaneous grace of God. He doesn't just give birth, he establishes her. You see that? The Most High Himself will establish her. So it's uniting the graces to hold them up to our vision, to look upon the grand work of God, and to see both of them, the, the, the born of her and the establishing her, as twin works of sovereign grace. And he says establish, which means make firm or solid. In other words, it means that God will preserve them in salvation, every single one whom he calls, he will establish. Which means you may waver in faith, but not fall from it. You may sin, but not sin the sin of death. You may fall down, but you'll be raised up. You may have doubts, but your mind will eventually become confirmed. Think of this. This is one of the most important graces we can think of. We think of saving grace. Because God left it up to me to stay in Jesus Christ. I would have fallen away years ago. The attacks of Satan are too strong. Our sinful impulses are too powerful. Our enemies have too sharp of teeth. 
The siren songs of the world are too beautiful. The person that doesn't rest in the preserving grace of God has never even understood their total depravity yet. The hope of the believer is not just that I'm saved by Christ, but I'm saved and preserved by Christ. Because if it was up to me, I would have gone a long time ago. And the confirmation of it all, the glue that holds this together is the name. Look at the name that the Lord proclaims here as the one who makes the promise sure. As he says, the most high. And the word there in the Hebrew is el which means supremacy, the powerful one, the sovereign one. The confirmation that not just will I be saved by grace, but sustained and preserved by grace comes from el the most high himself, the one with the reins of the universe in his hand is the one who preserves me so that when I get up to run away, the leash of the sovereign hand of God is upon me. He keeps me. He preserves me. He sustains me. In verse 6, there's an interesting confirmation of it in that language of the Lord will count when he registers and this, it's kind of uh, has the sense of, of somebody taking inventory with a checkbox and seeing if everything that they are accountable for is on the list. And what uh, the language makes clear here is that every single one born in her will be registered. In other words, they, they don't escape. They don't fall away. They don't get erased off the list. They don't just disappear. There isn't an administrative glitch somewhere. They aren't lost in the vapor of a cloud somewhere. He counts and he registers because of the effect of grace. Their standing is sure. And so what the Lord does here is he holds before his discouraged church a, a, a panoramic vision of hope. He says to the people that are discouraged, you need to connect back in your mind to how you became a part of this. You became a part of this because of the sovereignty of God's grace, because of the power of regeneration, and you have remained in it because the Heavenly Father has clutched you in the palm of His sovereign grip. The Lord is saying to His church with these words, and their heart sickness. Stop looking at your circumstances. Start looking upon what you have by grace. You have been born of God. You have entered the kingdom of God. The grace of God is yours and upon you at all times, whether it feels like you are stumbling and feeble and weak need that the hand of God is with you to establish you and to keep you and to preserve you. And all of that is true. It can be taken home to the bank this morning spiritually. It's because the love, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. We bring our message to conclusion this morning by 
by looking at verse 7, typically in an expository sermon, I don't take up a new element of text and expound it uh, for the application, but it seems to me that it's fit for this. It seems to me that the purpose of verse 7 is to take the message of the first six verses of the, of the testimony of the love of God in Christ for his church and for you this morning and the testimony to the sovereignty of God's grace and calling his people to himself and preserving them in faith. This is the application of it. It says, then those who sing as well as those who play the flute shall say, all oh, my springs of joy are in you. It's a worship service. And God says to his church, if you are among the number of those who fall within the gates of the beloved Zion, and you are in the number of those who have been born in her and who are established in her, follow the procession of worshipers to the house of the Lord. And the reason is obvious. It's because as we've said, the repetition of the term born of her reminds the worshiper of why they're even there in the first place. They have been born by grace. They have been brought to the Savior. And so Calvin commenting on this, he says, the great design of all the gifts God has conferred upon his church is that the faithful should testify their remembrance and gratefully acknowledge them. The point of bestowing the gift of the love of God on you. The point of bestowing the sovereign, regenerating grace of God upon you. The point of, of upholding you by his hand and preserving you in grace is that you'll return thanks for it. And so the call is to the regenerated this morning. It's time to sing. To those who've had sins forgiven, it's to worship to those who are being preserved in grace to give thanks. And I want you to notice the very word of thanks and worship that he puts upon our lips this morning. All my springs of joy are in you. We're not just called into the procession of worshipers. We're not just called upon to show up at the house of the Lord. But we're called to take the name. We're called to take the praises of God upon our lips. And to identify our joy as in Christ. All my springs of joy are in you. And this word for springs is such an interesting word. Because it is uh, referring to uh, a spring of water that's concealed below the ground. That is unexpected. And all of a sudden springs up from the earth to, to bring water to the thirsty and the weary. And that's the imagery that's used here as the psalmist, or rather the psalm leads us to, to lift up our hands and to praise the Lord. It's to say, it was so unexpected. It was, it was so unseen. It was so by surprise. It was so not counted on. And what I found was unexpectedly, mercifully, graciously, sovereignly, lovingly, God became that spring for me. A word to a weary church and a dejected church and a discouraged church and a sick and heart church. 
is remember the grace of God as your spring of joy. Oh, how we need this spoken into our ears so repeatedly. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the simplicity of the gospel. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the pursuit of so many other things and to forget the simplicity of this great statement. All my springs of joy are in Christ. Is that you this morning? Where do you locate your springs of joy? People of God, when we think upon these things, the great message of hope set before the church, the love of God, for these broken down gates of Zion. Now this uh, sovereign work of grace and regeneration and preservation, it's designed to, to encourage our hearts this morning to, to reset our thoughts and focus upon what is primary, and that is the Lord, and to find our life in him and our joy in Christ. And when we do, when we tune our hearts to sing with the band of worshipers, all our springs of joy are in you. It will be well with our soul. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your unfailing love for failing sinful people. And we thank you for the testimony of the sovereignty of your regenerating power and grace and through the work of your spirit in our hearts. Lord, our hearts are so easily downcast. And uh, so many times we seek to do a good job of cloaking that and covering it up and pretending that our hearts aren't sick when they are. But we get to say this morning that no one needs to pretend or put up a, a cloak of deceit or a cover. We can just all this morning be transparent and honest and then look to the, the word of, of hope and consolation. Help us all, O oh Lord, to, with whatever little bit of faith we have to clutch at the word you set before us now, that you love us. As uh, hard as that is for us to lay hold of and sometimes believe because of our own weakness, help us, O oh Lord, to lay hold of this great promise and of this great grace and its testimony of how you gave birth to us and you preserve us. Lord, as we think upon those things, don't let us fail to put this word upon our lips. All our springs of joy are in you. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.